Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So welcome back, everybody. We are doing the second half of September 1965. And one thing that I realized after we had recorded the first half is I completely forgot to report back about my adventures at Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina over Father's Day weekend. Things have been so busy here that I never asked you how it went. How did it go? It went well. I set up at a table in Artist Alley, selling some of my old comics pages. Also, I had a big banner up there for the podcast. I was happy that we had at least two different listeners show up at my table to say that they were fans of our podcast. I was very happy to meet them. The first one was named Matt. I remember that because it's your name. I did not get his last name. So the second one who came by was a man named Adam Davis. Adam proceeded to come to the podcasting panel that I was on and see that as well. So Matt and Adam, thank you very much. We very much appreciate our audience. And uh, it's great to see someone who actually listens to us just out in the wild. <laughs> yes. That's great. Uh, so the, the panel that I was on, the moderator was named Terrence Dollard, host of PBS's Comic Culture. There was a couple named Darren and Ruth Sutherland. They have a podcast called Trekker Talk. So when I saw that, I assumed, of course, that it was a Star Trek podcast, and I was wrong. It is a podcast about the Ron Randall independent comic Trekker. Whoa. I remember that. Wow. They must just like the Center Live skit where they have the tape store and they have to keep explaining, no, just the sticky kind. Okay, so this is a Trekker podcast, but no, 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 not that kind of Trekker. This is the the Ron sure. Randall comic. Okay. That is, you know, that's a hardcore thing to do a podcast about, man. I know. I mean, you know, you find your niche. There's somebody who goes by the name The Irredeemable Shag who works on the Fire and Water Podcast Network that started out as a podcast about Firestorm and Aquaman. Yes, I have been a guest on a Fire and Water Network podcast, ah. but it's it is a Bob Dylan podcast. I am a big fan of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan is run by the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and it was right when this podcast was starting. And so I did promote this podcast on that. I'm like, yes, I know this is a Bob Dylan podcast, but I know it started as an Aquaman and Firestorm podcast. And, How does that um, happen? <laughs> How does it go from one of those to the other? <laughs> well, it was a spinoff. One of the many spinoffs they've had of their Aquaman and Firestorm podcast is this very acclaimed Bob Dylan podcast, which I was on, which was a lot of fun. Then the other two who were on the panel with me, there was Paul Hicks, who has a podcast called Waiting for Doom. Once again, I assumed it was a Dr. Doom-related podcast. No, it is a Doom Patrol podcast, which uh-huh. was like, oh, okay, I could see this being something I could listen to. Last but definitely not least, we had Delvin Williams, who does podcasting with the Longbox Crusade. It seems that Longbox Crusade has a bunch of different people who have been working on it over the years. Delvin is not one of the original founders, but it sounds like he is one of the people who is most involved in it right now. All the folks I met seemed like really great folks, seemed like they really loved what they were doing. If you enjoy comics podcasts and you wanted to check out Trekker Talk or Fire and Water Podcast Network, Waiting for Doom or the Longbox Crusade, I would strongly encourage you to try them out and see if they are your cup of tea. Did you give a like a spiel about our podcast or did you just wait for questions from the audience? What'd you do? The topic was really more about the nuts and bolts of making a podcast. There were things about what equipment do you use? How do you start recording things? What kind of hardware and software are you using? So that was the main focus of what we were all talking about. But of course, we end up talking about our areas of interest a fair amount as well. I talked about why we're interested in this subject and how we're approaching it and how, you know, no, we're not the first people to do this, but we're just doing it our own way. I think it went well personally, and hopefully one or more people from that panel went ahead to check us out and is listening to us right now. 
Wonderful. Well, welcome to any new listeners we have gotten. That's wonderful that you did that. Maybe in the future, I can come along with you and we can uh, do it together. Sure. We'll see if we can make that happen. Let's get into it. Let's get into the rather atrocious back half of September 1965. <laughs> Once again, Matt overselling things here. Don't get me wrong. The the audience at home will hopefully still have fun. We've got, <laughs> you know, like they're, I, they're having always, fun. We aren't. <laughs> yes. It's always our goal on this podcast to have just as much fun with the bad issues as the good issues. We are going to try our very best to achieve that with this very episode, which you were about to listen to. We read these issues so you don't have to. Yes. <laughs> Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America. This is going to introduce the Titanium Man, who is yet another armored communist foe that Iron Man is going to be fighting over the years. On the cover, the title is If I Must Die, Let It Be With Honor. Meanwhile, we're going to have another Cap and Bucky adventure, something called Midnight in Grey Moor Castle. Titanium Man, right away, nice looking villain. I think, yeah. you know, looks nicer than Crimson Dynamo and very much sort of dry run for the Ironmonger, who will then go on to be the main villain in the very first MCU movie, Iron Man, in 2008. You always have this problem, and this was especially a big problem in the MCU in the early days. Clearly, Kevin Feige really liked the idea of heroes fighting 10-foot-tall villains. And of course, it's always very tricky when you've got a 10-foot-tall villain, because if it's a human being inside the suit, how does a human being fit into a 10-foot-tall suit? Which is very unclear with Jeff Bridges in the first Iron Man movie. Here, at least, they make it clear that, no, this is just a 10-foot-tall dude before he puts on the armor. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just an especially giant dude, Comrade Bolsky, who becomes the Titanium Man. And that's why the Titanium Man is so huge. So I appreciated that rather than trying to do the horrible math you have to do in your head to watch Jeff Bridges become a 10-foot-tall dude. Well, if you're wondering how it works, just go ask some cosplayers who dress up as the battle mech or something like that, yes. <laughs> which are often these, like, 8-foot-tall things, and they're just on platforms, and they're, yeah, all this sort of stuff. But if you've got all the motors and servos and stuff like that in there, you can make it work. That doesn't bother me. Story by Stan Lee, The Idol of Millions, art by Don Heck, The Toast of Two Continents, Inking by V. Coletta, the pride of the bullpen. Really? Uh, lettering by Sam Rosen, the last angry letterer. <laughs> A little bit odd. Well, just last month, or just uh, two episodes ago, was saying like, oh, why can't they have Coletta ink heck so that they pollute the fewest number of books? Oh, boy, oh, boy, I finally get my wish. I get to see yeah. Coletta inking heck. It's even more horrific than I could have dared dream. And, really? But the whole... I do not like it. But the whole reason I wanted Coletta inking Heck was so that Coletta would ink fewer non-Heck books to take Coletta off of otherwise good books he would be ruining and have him go ahead and ruin Heck, who has been doing terrible work. But Coletta, this month, is inking more Marvel comics than he ever would again before or since. So my whole glorious plan did not work. We got the worst of both worlds. We got Coletta inking Heck, but then we also have Coletta inking Fantastic Four, Journey into Mystery, Iron Man, Submariner, plus, if you want to count the annuals that's coming out this month, Coletta inks both the Thor annual and the Fantastic Four annual. So my whole plan to have Coletta ink heck in order to have him ink less stuff has failed spectacularly, and all we get is Coletta inking heck, which is just as atrocious as I dare dream. So I'm not saying that this is great. I'm just saying that Coletta is a much better fit for Heck. Heck often had a kind of scratchy inking style on himself, even in the issues that I have liked the most that he's worked on. Coletta's inking doesn't seem to differ from that very much. And so it just kind of seems to blend in for me. Yes, Heck is not turning in the same quality work he was in 62, 63, 64. But at this point, yeah. Yes, it's isolating the two things in one, but then also he doesn't do as much harm to heck as he does to everybody. Yeah, I, I guess I could agree with that. Tony Stark is working on some sort of uh, technological thing. He is talking about how he would love to marry Pepper, but his heart is giving out and he's just afraid he can't do that to her. He goes back to the office and Happy is hitting on Pepper and Pepper seems like she's into it at this point. I find the dialogue interesting. Happy says, how about us going to the Frug-A-Go-Go -Go tonight for some fancy steppin' pepper? 
I would I would say frug. Well, the reason I say frug, that's how it's pronounced in the B-52 song Rock Lobster. Oh, is it? Everybody okay. rockin', everybody frugin', people. Okay. On the- <laughs> she says to him, love too happy. I've got the most darling new discotech dress I've been dying to wear. Uh, and I don't know if I would have known that the word discotech was in circulation by 1965. Tony's just like, oh yeah, here, uh, have fun, guys. T- Pepper's like, hey, can you come with us? Happy's like, uh, yeah, okay. That's how it is. He doesn't come with them. But we see the communist work camp not far from barren Siberia. We meet Comrade Bulski, B-U-L-L-S-K-I, who is running this laboratory in Siberia. We see that he is already super strong. He is angry and he's wanting to make an impression on the power structure in the Soviet Union so that he can get more power. I feel like the titanium man I grew up with was not named Bolsky. So I think at some point someone else takes over the armor. Maybe. I will point out, I think I've mentioned before, that titanium, there are certain ways in which it's slightly stronger than steel, especially under heat and pressure, which is why it's great to use on like rockets and things like that. But it is just about as light as aluminum which is quite light. It's this almost miracle metal for doing things that need to be very strong and very light. As I think I've said before, Iron Man really should be Titanium Man. And as you have pointed out in the first Iron Man movie, he's actually a Titanium alloy. Yes. Bulski takes some of the banished scientists who are here and has them start to build himself an Iron Man-like suit. And then we see this gigantic suit of armor. As I said, Bolsky is already a super big guy, but then this is a even bigger, bulkier bit of armor. And yeah, it's interesting. It's like green. It's got all sorts of little nubbins on it and interesting little articulation on the limbs. But the face is what's unique about it. There are just two horizontal lines on the face, one of which more or less represents the mouth, the other one essentially the eyes, but then there are these two little glowing points inside that top line that represent the eyes. It's an interesting design. I've liked Hex designs on both this and Crimson Dynamo. I I found that he made them both look unique, and I generally like the look of them. Titanium Man is fantasizing about how to defeat Iron Man, figures how am I going to be able to go ahead and make this work. He puts out the word that Titanium Man wants to challenge Iron Man to prove communism's superiority over capitalism. Tony's like, yeah, I'm I'm not doing that. But then it turns out, oh, no, this is a big PR thing. And for the sake of the nation, he must go ahead and accept the challenge, even if he's going to die doing it. And of course, Senator Bird has to stick his jerk head into everything and insist that Iron Man go off and do it. Yeah, and he, of course, doesn't like Iron Man, doesn't like Stark, but, I mean, the commies double-dog dared him, so, you know, if we don't take up a double-dog dare, then we are going to be in bad shape. Tony figures out a short-term power boost, keeping his heart alive and helping him fight the Titanium Man simultaneously. One of the things he's been worried about is that his chest device doesn't seem to be as effective anymore, and he is constantly afraid that he is going to have a heart attack. So the matchup is going to be in this imaginary country, the tiny neutral nation of Alberia, and there's a big carnival atmosphere, as it says, fills the land as one of the greatest feats of combat of all time is about to begin. Tourists from all over the world are coming to see this match. It's like the big fight. We're going to be using satellites to beam the images all over the world. The battle site is going to be an old World War II battle site, which has never been cleaned up. It's going to set us up for some nice visuals. Yes, I like the visuals. Happy and Pepper are both there with Stark. They see this woman walk by. Pepper says, look, Happy, isn't that the Countess de la Spirosa? She says she happens to be an old flame of Mr. Stark's. So I think this is the first time we've seen her. We're going to see her showing up again. It's clear that she feels that she was jilted by Stark and is looking for some sort of retribution. We then get the official start of the fight between Titanium Man and Iron Man. 
there is a minefield. That's the reason it turns out that this World War II battlefield had never been cleaned up. It's mined. Titanium Man clearly knows where some of these mines are and lures Iron Man onto one of them and it blows up. The story ends on a cliffhanger. The art on this, I mean, yes, Coletta inking in the 60s is not good, but it is a much, much better fit here. And not just to, as you say, concentrate the badness, but he's just more well-suited to inking Heck style than most of the inkers they're putting on Heck these days. I guess I feel like I have been given the worst of all possible worlds and that I've got these two together without Coletta taking any time off from any other books in order to do it. But hey, I got what I wish for. You get what you get and you don't get upset. I think the Titania Man is a nice visual. I think it's a good character to introduce. I think he's a better version of the Crimson Dynamo. And we're going to get a lot of good stories over the years of Titanium Man and Iron Man wailing on each other. And here we have the first one. And a perfectly so-so, fine, acceptable Iron Man comic. <laughs> I can't really argue with that too much. Let me see if there was any other notes. Ah, yes. At one point when the challenge is being issued by Titanium Man to Iron Man publicly, Pepper comes up to Tony and says, A telegram for you, Mr. Stark. From behind the Iron Curtain, from Commieland, sounds like trouble, Pepper. (laughs) I just find so entertaining. So then we move on to Captain America. Way back in the early days of this podcast, we had the first Kirby apocalypse when Kirby had been drawing just about every Marvel comic and then suddenly went off like four of them at the same time. Well, here we have Kirby apocalypse number two here, where he goes down to just layouts on four different books this week. He went down to Just Layouts on Nick Fury, and they brought in a great artist, John Severin, to take over the rest of the art. However, we're going to have three other books where it just doesn't work, and it's a real tragedy. When we've been dealing with the back half of these months, we've been like, well, this was pretty bad, but we did have fantastic Kirby Frank Ray, generally speaking. Frank Ray has been inking Kirby on Captain America, who is actually Frank Giacoya. Oh boy, I wish that if Kirby was going to go down to layouts, that they kept Frank Ray on the book because Frank Giacoya was an excellent penciler in his own right, rarely got the chance to do pencils. Instead, Dick Ayers, now again, Dick Ayers, a perfectly fine penciler in his own right. But for some reason, this issue, script by Friendly Stan Lee, layouts by Frogsome Jack Kirby, rendering by frivolous Dick Ayers, lettering by Fairly Sardy Simon, I think it just looks awful. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. This is the kind of Dick Ayers inking with a mop that I tend not to like. You know, again, Dick Ayers seems to be a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing for me, where it just depends on which Dick Ayers we're going to get on inking. Generally, when it comes to him penciling and being inked by someone else, as is going on on Sergeant Fury and his Helen Commandos right now, I like that surprisingly well. But yeah, just as an inker, he just doesn't. Sometimes he's okay, but he usually doesn't do much for me. But I just think that this is shockingly bad. It's like neither of them wants to take responsibility for the pencils. Like Jack Kirby's like, oh, I'm not really doing the pencils. Someone else is going to do that. And Dick Ayers is like, oh, I'm not really doing the pencils. Jack did that. One of you has to step up here and take responsibility for the art on this issue, which looks terrible. We are in a World War II adventure. We see Cap and Bucky captured and being held above some sort of radioactive pit. Masked villains are pulling the lead cover off of the pit and exposing Captain America and Bucky to them. And then we see that Captain America and Bucky shrink down until they're small enough to fit inside a jar that can be held in a man's hand. Of course, it turns out this is not the actual Captain America and Bucky. These were two dummies that had been created to test this thing. Of course, they had to dress them up in Captain America and Bucky costumes in order to do the test because reasons. It turns out that this is a British traitor working with and for the Nazis. Why should I not trust the Nazis? I have devoted my life to science and rewards have passed me by. All I have to show for my years of toil is this, the results of an accident caused by another's carelessness. Your carelessness, so he's got a mechanical hand and he blames his sister for it. And the sister looks awful. I think it's the kind of thing where they were trying to make her look middle-aged like him, but they just weren't communicating well together between layout and then finisher. And yeah, that the picture of that mechanical hand, that inking on that is just terrible. And her hair on the previous panel, 
It's not great. There's a big operation of soldiers mobilizing here in this British base. Bucky is like, well, wait, why can't I come along? He's like, dude, this is an actual military operation. You're like a teenage kid who just hangs around at the base. Yes, you're Bucky, but everyone else here doesn't know that. All they know is you're Bucky because no one can figure out that Bucky and Bucky are the same person. Exactly. So he says, no, you can't come along with me. When we first started doing the World War II Avengers of Captain America, they were just rewriting actual stories that appeared in the actual Captain America comics from 1940 and 1941. America had not entered the war yet. So America was just fighting saboteurs on the home front. And it made perfect sense to have Bucky hanging out and helping them fight saboteurs on the home front. Well, now we've moved on and now we're doing post-D-Day comics, presumably. They feel they must acknowledge, okay, it makes no sense for Bucky to still be hanging around in that case. Yeah, perhaps so. The Nazis, meanwhile, have reason to believe that Captain America is at the base where Steve Rogers is stationed, which is true, but he has just left on this expeditionary force when the German saboteurs show up and blow up the now undermanned base, thinking that they're killing Captain America. They aren't, but remember, Bucky has been left behind here. So he now has his own solo adventure he can go into action for, changes into his superhero long underwear there. Looks like he is flying on page five. Yes. (laughs) Again, I'm reminded of the science fiction adventure comic strip you and I were trying to work on. The hero is jumping from a balcony to another balcony on a tower across here. And the way I'd drawn it, it was just way too far apart. And people who were looking at the pages were like, uh, so can the character fly? <laughs> like, uh, no, it's just, it's comics, man. He just jumped over there. Kirby can get away with it. Look right here on page five. Exactly. Bucky goes out and takes on the saboteurs, or I don't know, would they be considered saboteurs in wartime? Whatever you would call them. The saboteurs end up subduing Bucky and taking him away in their car to Greymore Castle here. The locations on all this is quite unclear in this issue. So they were able to bring Bucky over to England for the staging for the invasion, but not then over to France for the actual invasion. And then Steve is invading France, but then has to hijack a plane to go back to England where Greymore Castle is. It's a lot of moving people around the map in this issue that I find confusing. Yes. Private Steve Rogers ends up finding a telegram saying, subject, Captain America and Bucky, boy known as Bucky, prisoner at Greymore Castle, will be disposed of according to plan. So Steve Rogers literally just jumps out the window (laughs) to go do something about this. So he needs to go back and help the folks who were attacked because they thought he was there and help Bucky. But But. (laughs) he neglected to see the second half of the telegram. It says, stand by your post, paratroopers and panzers on way to trap rangers and annihilate entire raider force. Field Marshal Schweig. Steve Rogers is now essentially going AWOL. Well, not essentially. He's literally just going AWOL from his unit. He has a good reason to be doing so, but nobody knows that. And he is abandoning his unit right as they are about to get theoretically obliterated here by a full-on Nazi assault. And he does Um, not know this due to his sheer incompetence. Like, never (laughs) good to have stories just turn on the incompetence of the hero. You know, they really rub it in here that, like, if Steve had just read a little bit further, he would know that there was a massive attack coming and he could have warned all his compatriots. But he didn't read it. And so they're all going to get killed because our hero has abandoned them. That doesn't make for fun comics. I will go ahead and say that the art in this issue pretty bad, except for I like the sequence on page nine where then Steve has to... Hijack a plane to fly there. I mentioned in our last episode that I've been rewatching the Mission Impossible movies, and there is a sequence here that is reminiscent of the beginning of Mission Impossible 5, where Tom Cruise is hanging on to the outside of a plane. There is a really excellent panel, the fourth panel on page nine of Captain America hanging on yes. to the outside of a plane as it takes off, and the whole thing. So, this sort of Dutch angle really feels harrowing. It really feels like, yep, that's what it would look like and feel like to be hanging on to the tail fin of a plane while it takes off. Yeah, and what makes this page great is the layouts. I mean, the finished art, once again, just looks pretty bad. And it looks like it wasn't even erased well. So, like, in 
panel one with that little uh, machine gun emplacement, that just looks like there are pencil lines around there that just weren't erased out all the way. And so it just leaves this sort of residue to be picked up when it's printed. And yes, I love this sequence. One thing that I don't love about it is once he, you know, hangs onto the back of the plane, he then just slices into the body of the plane with his shield. Yes. No superpowers, just... Let me punch through this fuselage with my shield. Sometimes sometimes the shield has a razor edge. Occasionally. Occasionally. But not when it's bouncing around and hitting bad guys in the neck, because otherwise then it would be beheading them. Like it beheaded Baron Blood the one time when he killed someone in post-Golden Age. Uh, that was a vampire. You, it, well, yes. you can kill all the vampires you want to kill. This is absolutely true, but it was kind of gruesome. <laughs> it was. In Greymore Castle, they have Bucky. They are about to bathe him in Z-rays, whatever that means. The um, procedure begins. He's starting to have the rays shined on him, and uh, Captain America is now flying back to England. And, you know, they acknowledge here that he literally has just abandoned his post right as his unit is about to get basically massacred by the Nazis in order to do this, and no one will ever understand why he did it. The adventure in this one is fantastic, certainly. But yeah, the art has a lot of problems, and as you said, the sort of plotting is a little bit clunky and ham-handed. Yes, anytime when you have a hero who starts off in one country and goes to another country and then has to race back to the first country, it's always clunky plotting. But yes, I think that the... Kirby Ayers art that is not worthy of Kirby or Ayers, where they each seem to be expecting the other to put in the work that they were not willing to put in. It's terrible, except for this one spectacular sequence of Captain America. We should be clear, he rides a motorcycle up to the plane and then hops on the plane from there. It's quite a spectacular sequence and makes the whole issue worthwhile. Okay, that is an issue that we read so you don't have to. So now here is another issue that we read so you don't have to. Yes, we are going to continue the story of having the wrong people ink the wrong books. Tales to Astonish number 71, Submariner and the Incredible Hulk. No Hulk on the cover, just the Submariner starring in Escape to Nowhere, running from a atrocious-looking seaweed monster. Before we can get to the atrocious-looking seaweed monster, we have to have the atrocious-looking squid. The Submariner story, picking up where the cliffhanger was in last issue, superlative story by Stanley, sensational art by Adam Austin, who is really, of course, Gene Colan, spectacular inking by Vince Coletta, wah, wah, sufficient lettering by Artie Simak. So Gene Colan, famous for his fluid penciling, the most fluid penciler of all time, and therefore should be ideal for this book that is set in fluid, The Submariner. However, he is inked by the least fluid inker of all time, the scratchy Vince Coletta. And it was atrocious last issue. It is even more atrocious this issue. We should point out, however, that even with a better inker, there's problems with this art. That squid does not look like a squid. I don't know what it still looks like, but this is not award-winning squid art. I also have a bit of a problem following the story in terms of what exactly Submariner had to get from the squid. You know, I understand that he's following a series of clues to find the missing trident so that he can restore his kingship over his people, but it's a little unclear how this actually works. We then get Submariner has to burrow his way out of the collapsed cave he's in, and you do get a sense of colony goodness here. When he is burrowing his way, this feels like colon art surviving the colonists. He finds a bunch of his compatriots who are working for Krang that he has to sort of overthrow. And we see Krang is watching all this on TVs. I don't know how they have all these underwater TVs. Oh, yeah. He says to Dorma, I know that you have been working with him, but all part of my master plan, this will destroy him. And she's crying again. Under, yes, underwater, crying. On the bottom of the underwater ocean. Underwater tears. <laughs> Now, whenever you have evil dictators in comics or in anything, they always have to be shown collecting a lot of taxes. Because after all, what evil governments do is collect taxes. Good governments would never dream of collecting taxes. So then we see one of the people who has to pay these taxes is wearing very strange headgear. One of okay, them is good. wearing just a, <laughs> a circle of glass just balanced on his head with seemingly nothing holding it there. Yeah, uh, uh- I was going to say it's like he has just a glass plate on his head, but no, a plate at least has a little indention in it a little bit. This is just a circle of glass. Yeah, I have no clue what's going on with that. 
He is saying, even if Namor finds Neptune's trident, Krang will never yield the throne. We are in the brink of a disaster so grave that even the Subbearer's powers may not save us now. Namor then feels like in his quest for the trident, he has to fight a giant seaweed man. And he fights a giant seaweed man, and we end on a cliffhanger in the middle of it. The last issue had its problems. This issue, those problems metastasize. Cohen and Claudia continuing to not work well together. I like the whole idea of this being a giant quest to find Neptune's trident to reclaim his throne, but there's not a lot of progress made in that story, and the plotting of it is clearly awkward. Yes, I say in my notes, pretty lame issue. Quest doesn't have juice. I hoped it would. Terrible inks. Yes. Oh, uh, one thing I will say is something about the combination of their pencils and inks on the seaweed man. It doesn't look like seaweed, but it looks interesting. Like, I'm at least not like, oh, that's a train wreck. I'm like, somehow that combination is making that look really compelling in some way. I mean, that's the one place I can say that. Certainly him inking colon is usually just utterly terrible. And I think that's why this pops out. Yeah, the seaweed man's not terrible. And he does kind of look like he's underwater, sort of undulating in the current. That's kind of cool. So on to the Hulk. Another book where the Hulk book wasn't great, but at least we had great Kirby art. But as with four other books this month, Kirby is going down to just layouts from this point on. I wondered if Kirby was going down to layouts because of all these books because of the annuals he was doing this month. But no, he stays on layouts only on all four of these books for the next year or so. And they will all suffer greatly as a result. Here we have the Incredible Hulk, Lake Beast at Bay. This time we have Stan Lee, Stunning Story, Jack Kirby, Lavish Layouts, Mickey DeMeo. You call him DeMeo, I call him DeMeo. Awesome art. Now, of course, this is really Mike Esposito. Already signed my cautious lettering. And again... Why not Frank Giacoya, Frank Ray, Mike Esposito, not known as a great penciler. It's fine. It's nowhere near as atrocious as Dick Ayers did on Captain America. The art is perfectly fine, but it's not great. We pick up where we left off in the cliffhanger last issue where Hulk and Rick Jones are fighting the leader's giant humanoid when a giant Sunday punch missile, seemingly a nuclear missile, is being shot at it. They leap out of the way. Rick Jones says, it's about to hit. You'll never get far enough away in time. And the Hulk says, don't be too sure, Rick. Our speed's increasing every second. I don't think that's how physics work. You were a physics minor. Generally, when you jump up off the ground, I would think that the effect of gravity would be decreasing your speed the entire time rather than anything increasing your speed. Also, you will notice that those speed lines clearly show that he is arcing upward further away from the Earth. Hulk is clearly flying in that particular picture. <laughs> so here's the thing. In the next panel or two, they end up following essentially the shockwave from the explosion, and that speeds them up. And I'm like, okay, that would work, possibly. But yeah, not now. <laughs> That's not how things work. And the next panel, they get just out of the range of the mushroom cloud, which means they're safe. Yes. That's that's the danger in a nuclear explosion that you will actually be swallowed up in the mushroom cloud. That's the only real danger. Yes. They're rocketed out of the mushroom cloud. They land on a mesa far away. Now, I should point out that the Hulk has been totally useless so far in this issue. And the U.S. government is just sisters are doing it for themselves. They're just taking care of this problem all on their own. They nuke the humanoid, and that wins the day. Like, that's, this is not a case where it's like, no, don't you realize the government is doing it all wrong? Only the Hulk can save us. Nope, the government was right. The Hulk was wrong. They nuke the humanoid. The leader goes ahead and self-destructs the humanoid to keep the government from getting it. Hulk is trying to take care of Rick. He has to give Rick mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, which... <laughs> Obviously, that's a little problematic for a comic book. You generally don't want to create panels of the two men seemingly kissing in 1965 comics. So he sort of does the mouth-to-mouth resuscitation from afar and blows into his mouth. They go to Banner's old cave, which I thought had been already destroyed or something. But now the government finds a cave and they're like, hey, the Hulk just went in that cave with Rick. They are besieging the cave. They are attempting to blow it up. Hulk manages to get Rick out of the cave 
then Hulk is left alone in the cave and then the leader appears to him and the leader says, I can teleport you away from here. Says, acknowledge me as your leader, swear to serve me or else I leave you here to face certain death. The choice is yours. And it says, next issue, the fateful choice. Of course, if the leader had teleporting abilities, you would think that would have changed the way the last several issues had gone down, (laughs) where he was transporting people to and from places in a more direct manner. But that is where this issue ends. It's a perfectly fine issue. DeMeo... Esposito's finishing on Kirby is not great. It is not terrible. It's perfectly fine. I like the leader as a villain. It's nice to have this sort of escalation of their story at the end with this choice hanging over the Hulk. It's a perfectly fine story. The Mickey DeMeo, or Mike Esposito, finishing here. You said it's not great. It's not terrible. It's closer to terrible than it is to great. (laughs) Yeah. I agree with you. We've seen worse. We've seen Coletta doing a lot of this stuff. Just look at panel two on the final page. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's not that's not good. But one thing I do want to point out about this, at one point after the Sunday Punch missile has exploded, Ross says, now, since the Sunday Punch was the largest of our new clean bombs, which leave no lingering radioactivity, we can begin an immediate inspection. So I trust that about as much as I trust things like clean coal and asbestos. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, 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 don't worry. There's no radiation left over after this thing. Uh, it's, it's perfectly fine. We can go ahead and send you in. You, you don't need a radiation suit. You're good. Yeah. Let us move on to X-Men. It sounds like the uh, art combination on here bothered you a little bit more than it did me. It's not great, but there are some things about it that I do like. Let's go ahead and talk about the credits. Story by Spinal and Stan Lee, layouts by Jolly Jack Kirby, penciling by Jay Gavin, inking by Joe Sinnott, lettering by Swinging Sam Rosen. We've got Joe Sinnott here. He's back. He's back. It's so exciting. And he's inking Kirby and Sinnott inking Kirby, one of the greatest all-time combinations in normal history. But someone has come between them. Whoever Jay Gavin is, is the intermediary between Kirby and Sinnott, and he ruins it. I don't know who Jake Evan is. I don't know if he was a guy from the old days or if he is new to Marvel at this point, but he is going to be finishing the pencils of Jack Kirby's layouts for the X-Men for a while here, and he is really weak. And not even the great show Sinat can save the art on this issue. You've got Kirby. You've got Sinat. They're right there. Just let them work together. Don't put this guy in between them. Again, the art is fine. Sinat as you say, mostly saves it, but Gavin does not seem to be like a great penciler to me. Gavin is actually named Werner or Werner. I don't know how you would pronounce it. Roth. And oddly, he will end up doing every other issue of X-Men under his real name and then the alternate issues under his pseudonym, Jay Gavin. Seems like it's funny. It should have been very clear to me, but I did not realize Warner Roth and Jay Gavin were the same guy. I didn't look him up. And yeah, he's not a good penciler. Uh, He did work with Atlas Comics. So he has worked with this company before in a previous incarnation. Werner Roth's pencils don't bother me. They're perfectly adequate. I really do. uh, Like I said, I really do like some of the things from Joe Sinat, particularly a lot of the faces. So if you look at Professor X's face, on that splash page in the background behind Juggernaut, whose butt you see in the foreground. I love that face. That's a great face. And that's almost entirely a Sinat face. Yeah. But if you go then to the top of page two, where you have Juggernaut confronting Professor X while the five X-Men are splayed around them, every single person in this panel looks like they are being drawn from a different perspective. Like these look like seven people that are in seven different rooms at seven different angles, none of them look like they belong in the same room with each other. It's like someone's taking a photo collage and it's just like whatever angle the camera happened to be on this one, that's where they are on this one. Yeah, I will not disagree with that. And it's funny how the juggernaut is drawn here. You know, it's funny in comics, it has just become standard that essentially all comic superheroes look like bodybuilders. Whereas once upon a time, some of the comics characters looked instead like strongmen. 
And strongmen yeah. and bodybuilders are not the same thing. Bodybuilders are trying to make their bodies look powerful and beautiful. Strongmen are just trying to be strong. And oftentimes they have bigger, sort of more barrel-shaped torsos. Superman was really drawn with that kind of barrel-shaped torso through much of the Silver Age. To a greater extent, so is a Juggernaut here, which I find interesting, not pleasant, but also, I think, a perfectly valid choice. Yeah. We're picking up from the cliffhanger that we had where the juggernaut had made his way into the school for gifted youngsters. Professor X is trying to affect the juggernaut with his mental powers, but it seems that the helmet that he wears is blocking the mental energy from reaching him. Cyclops digs a pit in the ground for Juggernaut to fall into. So they can't stop him from moving forward, but they can just sort of say, hey, gravity will take you down out of our plane so we can at least deal with you for a little bit. Uh, I noticed that there is apparently nothing underneath the floor in the X-Men's mansion. This is nope. just built on a concrete pad, apparently. No plumbing, no electricity, no nothing underneath there. Just dirt. <laughs> so this yep. buys them a little bit of time. Professor X cobbles together some sort of machinery that is going to boost his mental powers. Page four, bottom panel, fourth panel. Again, a nice Sinot face. Any place where Sinot is shining through everybody else here, I generally tend to like. But so this is utterly bizarre plotting it. Kirby and Lee seem to be at total cross-purposes for the entire rest of this issue. If you just look at the art, it is pretty clear what is going on. We see Professor Xavier is saying, we're being attacked. I'm going to go build a device. It is going to amplify my mental powers. I will send out some sort of mental message over the city of New York. That is the story that the images are telling. However, Lee is like, no, no, no. I'll hook up this thing to my head. It's creating so much mental powers. I, my mental power is already so highly charged that I must unleash some energy. I'll send mental waves out over the heart of the city. Releasing them will act like a safety valve to me. So in the scripting, he is accidentally sending mental waves out over the city of New York. And indeed, yeah. the whole rest of the issue is like that. He contacts the Human Torch for the Human Torch to come help. But if you go to the bottom of page nine, again, in the art, you've got Professor Xavier speaking to Human Torch as a little ethereal head and clearly should be talking to Human Torch and saying, you must come help us. But it's been scripted by Stan Lee as, again, this is sort of seen as something that Xavier has accidentally done. The next page, it shows Xavier being frustrated at how that communication goes, but he has to say, I accidentally reached the Human Torch, then I thought of a way he could help us, but he didn't trust his senses. This is all bizarre. Lee is not telling the same story that Kirby is. That's a really good observation. I hadn't actually really sort of put that together as succinctly as you just did right there. But yes, I will back you up entirely. Juggernaut is able to uh, climb his way back up out of the hole he was put in. He bursts out through the floor again and is attacking the X-Men. We're then seeing all sorts of scenes of different people who are picking up Professor X's mental waves. We see there's a plane where the pilot is picking it up. We see the teen brigade. We see that Matt Murdock is in court and he is able to hear it. Jeez, what is that voice in my head? Yeah, so we just have more fighting with the juggernaut. We then see, as you said, Johnny Storm and he is climbing into a friend's hot rod, but it's not a hot rod. It is like a rocket car. I think. Yes. Then he gets the mental contact from Professor X. Again, I'm really liking Johnny's face on page nine here, panels three and four. Yes. There's a footnote saying, see the great Fantastic Four annual number four on sale now. That's a typo. It should say Fantastic Four annual number three. Right. Johnny is like, Reed has warned us that with the upcoming wedding, people might be trying to trick us into doing things that's going to ruin the wedding. So I can't trust this you know, voice in my mind. I'm like, actually, that's probably a really good instinct there, Johnny. <laughs> so he's like, nope, I'm not going to do anything about it. The professor tries harder, is eventually able to get him here. But again, according to Lee, Professor Schaefer is like, oh, I accidentally contacted Johnny Storm. Well, I guess I can use him now that I've made this accidental contact. Why not? Sure. Have him come help. 
And it's all very awkward. And it's like, wait, he's not helping. I didn't even think he could earlier, but now that I accidentally contacted him, I now consider him vital to my to my strategy. Just this very instant. Juggernaut does seem to really badly injure Beast's left leg on page 12. Beast is still able to make it around on his other three limbs, but in the next several panels, it becomes clear that he really is quite hurt, but he's able to lure the Juggernaut into the danger room and then turn on the various dangers that Professor X is always trying to kill his students with. Yes, and so I think he, this is the first time they've used the danger room against a bad guy, which is always fun and it might I, be. really well done. I, I like the sequence a lot. So that top panel on page 14, there's just all sorts of mayhem being unleashed in the danger room there. And uh, Juggernaut really does look like he is finally being sort of knocked off his balance for uh, not quite the first time, but nearly. It's weird here. They also talk about the Juggernaut having a, not a force field, but some kind of force that comes out of him in addition to just being able to be an unstoppable juggernaut. One of the places we see that, you've seen it elsewhere earlier in this issue that I've just gone past, when this big rolling solid steel cylinder is about to roll over the juggernaut, he can just use this sort of force that he has around him to push the thing back at the beast. I don't think that survives long in the juggernaut mythos. I don't remember no. that from when we were kids. Johnny gets another contact from Professor X. He's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it now. Professor X is then like, okay, my plan can now go into effect. Marble Girl, you just go ahead and pick the juggernaut off the ground once again, just to sort of keep him off balance for a little bit. The professor's plan is basically, hey, Human Torch, you just go ahead and keep him distracted and maybe blind him and do some stuff like that while we figure out some other things. So I'm like, how is this the great strategy? I'm not entirely yes, sure. this is utterly bizarre. It's like, again, getting people around from my place. I need a whole the Human Torch all the way up here from New York City. And the whole reason he brings the Human Torch there is I want you to just be really bright. Forget your power to actually engulf people in flames. That's not going to help us. <laughs> Perfect. You blinded him temporarily. He cannot fight what he cannot see. You staggered him. And that's it. Earlier in this issue, he sent Angel and a Cyclops off to fight Juggernaut. Now, Angel has no offensive powers at all. And Angel has no super strength. He should not be able to yank this helmet off that's bolted onto the Juggernaut's head. Have the Beast do it. The Beast has super strength. They do say in the dialogue here, the Beast had attempted to take the helmet off earlier. And they say at this point that the Beast had succeeded in loosening it. So that's okay. why Angel is able to take it off. What really doesn't make sense to me on this page, page 19, look at panel one. How high are the ceilings in <laughs> Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters? One does have to wonder. For the uh, dear listeners out there, Angel is doing a full-on dive bombing from somewhere up above Juggernaut coming directly down on him. At this point, now that his helmet is off, Professor X is able to knock him down with some mental force. And then... Professor X is like, all right, well, thanks so much, Torch. I'm now going to wipe your brain of any memory of what you just did here. Like, why? Like, right. why on earth would you wipe right. his memory of this? He doesn't feel bad. He's not against you. Just send him home. So you recognize our identities are secret, right? You're not going to tell anybody? Okay, good. Head on home. But no, it's, I mean, Professor X is just so used to going ahead and lobotomizing people at the end of their adventures. He's just gotten really, really willy nilly with it at this point. So <laughs> Torch is just like, boy, talk about daydreaming. I can't remember how I flew this far from home. I must be getting really absent minded in my old age. And then we have the X-Men, once again, being awful to Jean here in page 20. All of the male X-Men have been rather seriously physically injured in the fight. Jean was not, though, so she now has to act as nurse to all of the guys who are just being wolves in this whole thing. Uh, well, not Scott. Scott, once again, treats her with respect. We've never all been injured at the same time before, he says. Warren says, who cares? With a nurse like Jean, it's a pleasure. And Hank says, my mother used to kiss me to expedite my recovery. 
She says, I do not happen to be your mother, Mr. McCoy. And Iceman says, that's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'm sure in the 60s came across as just sort of playful adolescent flirting, but comes across a little differently these days. Anyway, Oh, it's awful. Yeah. As I said, I will say once again that I really like what Sinat did to the faces. I think that almost everything I like in this issue has to do with Sinat's finished inking on here. And that does give me a lot of highlights. That being said, this whole Juggernaut story did not need to be two parts. No. He can't be stopped. So then what do we do for the next 10 pages until we get to the climax? Uh, Jay Gavin, otherwise known as Werner Roth, will be around as pretty much the regular penciler once Kirby leaves till like Steranko comes. Like how <laughs> it's it's a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of around for years. He's OK. I don't mind his work. Yeah. This issue is eh, wishy washy has its highlights, but that's about it. By the time Lee is done with scripting the plot, utterly bizarre plotting it to bring in Human Torch just to be really bright, awkward bizarre plotting and you know the script is telling a story completely different from the one the art is telling it did not need to be a two-parter and of course in the end it all just comes down to putting the mental whammy on them as they all do one other little detail i forgot to mention is when hank mccoy is turning on the danger room equipment he is thinking to himself the pain is excruciating but I daren't stop now. And I think I pointed out before in other issues that the only two writers I've ever seen use the contraction daren't are Stan Lee and Chris Claremont. Yes. There might be others who have done it. I I would not put it past Roy Thomas, but those are the only two writers I am aware of ever having used that contraction in the history of the English language. All right, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up here. It is your turn to do Avengers, another comic that we read so you don't have to. Once again, we have the month of good pencilers, good inkers, not being used well together. The Mighty Avengers, Vengeance is ours, Wham-type script by Stan Lee, Pow-type penciling by Don Heck, Zowie-type inking by Wallace Wood, rather nice lettering by Artie Simak. And they're so proud of this inking, they go ahead and brag about it on the cover this may be the first time they've ever specifically bragged about the inking on a cover. They say, special note to art lovers, wait till you see wonderful Wally Woods inking of Don's drawings in this great ish. Well, in fact, I don't love it. I enjoyed Wally Woods inking on Bob Powell in A Human Torch Story and in A Charitable Story where Powell worked over Woods' layouts and then Wood came back and inked it. But Wally Wood inking Don Heck, you would think that he might be able to fix Heck's flaws, but he's really not. The Heck shines through. This feels more like a Heck issue than a Wood issue. There's just little bits where I think, okay, yeah. Wood is kind of making this work, but just a few little bits. I think that the problem with Don Heck at this point is his storytelling style just does not work on a team superhero book. No. And bringing in a fantastic inker is going to do nothing for that core problem. And it is not. Captain America, when last we saw him, had dived off a plank, prodded by the swordsman, counting on the Avengers to rescue him. And we get a fairly nice sequence of Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, and Hawkeye coming up with ways to rescue Cap as he falls off the building. Swordsman realizes he's in trouble pretty quickly here as the Avengers surround him. But then the swordsman disappears, evaporates into the air. The Avengers are like, how are you doing that? And Swordsman's going, this isn't my doing. It must be one of you. And then he completely disappears. And they're like, "Uh, that was weird. What just happened? Well, it turns out that the Swordsman has been teleported to the lair of the Mandarin, presumably actually in China here. This is a good example on page eight. All of page eight, I'm not seeing any Wallywood here. I've always hated the way Don Heck draws the Mandarin's face, not just in that it's a racist caricature, but it just is ugly in all the worst ways. The central panel on this page of the sneering Mandarin, just I'm not seeing any Wallywood there. I'm just seeing pure Heck, and it's terrible. Yeah, and the texture on his cowl. Yeah, that does not look like wood to me. I don't know if Wally would realize that Stan Lee was going to brag about his inking on the cover, but maybe if he had, (laughs) he would have uh, brought more of himself to the job. But then there's just one page here where it seems like Wood is bringing more of his all, and that is page 10. So we come back to the Avengers, and they're having another argument about who should lead the Avengers. And they're having a little contest here between Captain America, Hawkeye, and Quicksilver. And I feel like page 10 feels like a Wood page. 
Scarlet Witch's face is kind of attractive in a woodish way. And uh, I can definitely see that. One thing I will point out is on the previous page, the very top panel, some stuff about that control panel in the background right behind the Mandarin there does feel a little bit like Wally Wood science fiction technology stuff from uh, the EC days. But yeah, it really doesn't bring enough to really make much of a difference. No, indeed not. Mandarin goes ahead and adds some fancy buttons to the swordsman's sword so that he can shoot flames and stuff with it. Then the Mandarin says, I have invented a technology that I will call deepfake. But he doesn't actually say deepfake, but it's basically he has invented deepfake technology. And he then sends a hologram of Iron Man to the Avengers. It's really just a fake has Iron Man tell the Avengers to go ahead and let Swordsman into the Avengers. And they're like, okay, if you say so. So then they go ahead and let Swordsman into the Avengers. The Swordsman plants a bomb to blow them all up. This is sort of in the opposite order. Then that night after Swordsman plants the bomb, he is visited by sort of the ghost of the Mandarin, who tells him, blow up the Avengers, which he's already done. And then this convinces the Swordsman, no, I won't do it. I don't like the Mandarin. I'm going to go defuse that bomb. But then he's caught defusing the bomb. It looks like he's placing the bomb. The Avengers attack him. Then he's like, no, you don't understand. I, I'm good now. I was going to defuse the bomb. No one believes him. He has to run away. He is moping on top of a building. The Avengers are wondering what just went down. The Mandarin back in, quote, the Orient, unquote, is ranting, never again will I take a partner. I failed because of the swordsman to avenge my honor. He too must be destroyed. Despite the bragging on the cover, Wood is not bringing a whole lot to this book. It's a perfectly fine story, wrapping up last issue's story. The general redemption arc of the swordsman over the years will be a thing that exists, and well, you will get a lot of issues out of it. Never the greatest character. And they always end up in this thing with... People who have cutting weapons where it's like, but we can't ever actually show any buds. We can't ever actually show him cutting anything. So it's like, okay, from now on, his sword shoots lasers. And And um, earlier, even before I had superpowers, it could be a boomerang. Once again, swordsman never made any sense to me. So one detail I wanted to point out is when Iron Man's projecto image first shows up, Quicksilver says, how did he come in? The doors are still locked. It's like, you don't lock your doors. We know you don't lock your doors. Everybody just walks right into this place. What do you, if you have the, if you have locks, you need to go get those checked because they're not doing anything. Good point. There's another panel where the swordsman is being teleported back to Avengers Mansion from China, presumably, Western China. It's just a weird panel that looks like there's the rainbow bridge in the background almost. And yes. the swordsman is thinking to himself, I've got one thing to say for the Mandarin. He might not be the guy I'd most like to be stranded on a desert island with, but I'd sure rather have that oriental oddball with me than against me. So that line hasn't aged poorly at all. No. (laughs) I feel like people have been prejudiced against oddballs for so long, and to see that naked prejudice (laughs) on the pages of a Marvel comic is just painful. It reminds me of a part in the history of oddballs that I think we've all tried to forget. (laughs) Also, this panel is very clearly an example of how great Dicko is, because Dicko can do people transferring between dimensions so much better than Heck can. Oh, yeah. Also, the swordsman had planted this explosive device onto one of these control panels in Avengers Mansion. He was very proud of himself for having done this. And then comes back to it when he's thought better of things and like, you know what? These Avengers are really good people. You know, maybe I shouldn't do this. He tries to take it off. And before he gets caught, he's thinking it's coming undone there. I've pried it loose. Once it's released from the panel, it can no longer be detonated. And a few pages later, it is detonated while it's not attached to the panel. So, but then also in that same panel, when they see him doing this, remember, he had attached this in plain sight on one of their control panels, thinking it would just blend in and look like all the other dials and gizmos. Uh, But at this point, when they see him taking it off, they immediately say, Swordsman, you're tampering with our control panel. In your hand, a nitro bomb. So somehow they're able to see from across the room that, hey, you've just taken that fake dial off. And, oh, my God, I know exactly what kind of explosive that is. Yes. Unfortunately, we aren't going to be seeing better days on the Avengers here for quite a while. 
Oh, God, no. This is issue 20, and the book doesn't get great until issue 41 when Jolton John Buscema comes on. So we've got an, another whopping 20 issues of Don Hank to go. We have one issue that is inked by John Romita Sr. Uh, in a little bit, and that actually works quite well. That one, he yes. is able to really clean up the problems with Hex art. But that's like pretty much the one highlight I'm looking forward to. <laughs> in the next like two years of avengers yes tragically okay well steve with kirby going to layouts only on most of his non-fantastic four and thor books we are going to only be accelerating the problem we've already had of every other episode of this podcast being about bad books and oh boy that is just gonna get worse and worse from here on in but we are going to do our best to make sure every episode of this episode is equally entertaining. I hope this has been an entertaining episode <laughs> as we have dealt with these problematic books. We will, I promise, find whatever value we can find in the back half of every month from this point on. We will hopefully still entertain you as we discuss these bad books. But yes, this month, even more so than recently, the first four books that we discussed were good and the last four books we discussed were bad. So every other month, though, Strange Tales will appear in the second half of the episode, and that now at this point has a really great front and back half. So every other month, we will have a little bit more goodness in the second half episode. Yes, we should explain that because we go alphabetically and Daredevil is alternating with X-Men. So when it's a Daredevil month, Strange Tales gets bumped to the second half of the month. And when it's an X-Men book, Strange Tales gets bumped to the first half of the month. And some of you may have noticed that the letter A for Avengers actually comes after the letter X here, uh, when in reality it should be beforehand. So you get a no prize. And meanwhile, <laughs> we've been doing that deliberately, taking that one out of alphabetical order because it usually seems to show up last in the continuity of each month more often than not. Yes. All right. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. Yep. This was fun. Thanks so much for promoting our podcast at Heroes Con. So glad to hear that went well. And we will see you shortly, America. Everybody out there in America and the rest of the world, have fun, read some good comics, stay safe out there until we are in your ear holes again in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.